Hello and welcome back to Oro Valley Catholic. This is Father John Arnold. Here we are in the depths of July. It's hot, it's humid, and I thought I was the hippest 67-year-old guy that lived in my rectory. But turns out there's stuff I don't even know. So talking to our new office manager, who's about 25 and very sharp, she starts telling me about what's happening in the world around me. Have you ever heard of the furries? And so this is what a furry is. And yes, it's exactly what it sounds like. F-U-R-R-Y, as in animal fur. So the term furry, according to the internet, describes a diverse community of fans, artists, writers, gamers, and role players. Most furies create for themselves an anthropomorphized animal character, and persona, as in persona, but with an F, with whom they can identify and can function as an avatar, avatar within their community. If you remember, I did that book, that story by Tara Isabella Burton, who wrote Strange Rights, and she talked about when uh, young people live, uh, uh, leave like these uh, more formed communities like the Catholic Church. They don't generally become atheists. They go off into these weird little sub-communities that give them a sense of community. Well, the furries is one she did not mention, but and I probably will have to write her a heated letter and mention it to her because I expect her to keep me as hip as I can be. But uh, I thought it was interesting to just look at this on the internet. So here's one of the questions that's asked in Quora. Is it a sin to be a furry? And so I think suspect this is maybe a Protestant answer. There is no mention, the writer says, that dressing up as an animal is sinful in any way. However, some furries want to engage in intercourse with animals. Uh, we call that bestiality. Uh, and that, that definitely is sinful. That isn't what human beings are made for. What my office manager told me, though, was that in Australia, some furries in high school are demanding that boxes with kitty litter be put into the wherever their college, their high school campus is, because they refuse to use bathrooms for for human beings. Apparently, that is undue discrimination, and so that they want to use, uh, well, they want to use boxes with kitty litter in it. So, uh, what about furry religion? Um, what do furries believe? And this is what the internet says in terms of religious preference, 23.5% of fur furries self-identified as Christian, which is interesting, 16.8% as atheist, 16.8% as agnostic, 11% as pagan slash Wiccan uh, witch, 2.4% as Buddhist, 1.2% as Jewish. I thought that was striking. You very rarely hear about Jewish furries, but apparently they're out there. Uh, at least 1.2%. And then 1.1% is deist, and then 0.9% as Satanist. And then 26.2% um, as other. That is, they kind of make up their own way of thinking. And so in the gospel this weekend, Jesus talks about being the sower of seeds. And uh, he talks about good ground and rocky ground and the things in the world that come to eat up the gospel. Uh, how many people out there are just not in touch with God because they've lost touch with nature and their own human nature? 
So let's talk, let's turn to that because in the scriptures today, God is showing us through nature how his word works in our hearts. And so stay tuned and uh, we'll conclude with some uh, remarks about the furries. So the gospel this weekend is about the sower of seed, and I think you're familiar with the parable. We're in uh, the 13th chapter of Matthew, and Jesus is uh, sitting on the sea, and he's teaching about this sower that comes and sows seeds. But uh, Jesus, as always, is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. So you can always look back, and you can find the background of our Lord's stories because he is so Jewish, and so you find them, in the, uh, in the writings of the uh, people of Israel. So um, the Psalm 65, which is our Psalm for the weekend said, the seed that falls on good ground will yield a fruitful harvest. You have crowned the year with your bounty and your paths overflow with a rich harvest. The untilled meadows overflow with it. The seed that falls on good ground will yield a fruitful harvest. The fields are garmented with flocks and the valleys blanketed with grain. They shout and sing for joy. And so nature gives glory to God because nature's fecundity uh, points to the great generosity of God. And so the psalmist, and I'm not sure when the psalm was written, it could have been probably before Isaiah wrote, because when Isaiah writes in chapter 55, which is the, uh, I think uh, the very end or the second uh, part of Isaiah, Isaiah is probably a group of prophets riding over the period of at least a century or so. And so Isaiah 55 says that, thus says the Lord, justice from the heavens, the rain and the snow come down and do not return there till they have watered the earth, making it fertile and fruitful, giving seed to the one who sows and bread to the one who eats. So shall my word be that goes forth from my uh, mouth. My word shall not return to me void, but shall do my will, achieving the end for which I sent it. And you know, we Christians understand Jesus is the word. And Jesus is like a seed that's sown. Remember he says, unless a grain of wheat dies and falls into the ground, it remains just a grain of wheat. And he's referring to the resurrection. Because when you proclaim Christ to the culture, even the furries, you're claiming the dominance of God, the sovereignty of God over nature. But nature and the fecundity of nature, the fertility of nature, the fruitfulness of nature uh, points to God. And so that uh, you sow seeds and a harvest comes forward, human beings are that. Remember when Jesus says you'll know them by their fruits and, and how we produce 30, 60, 100 fold, it'll say in the gospel. But it's partly also what's in the second reading from St. Paul which is about your my salvation tied into the redemption of the entire cosmos. The human person in, in um, terms of what the Judeo-Christian tradition is a microcosm of creation. Why? Because we are three-souled, at least according to some medievals, but you'll understand it. We have a vegetative soul, we really, uh, we can't live without soil and water. The same things that vegetables uh, uh, and the vegetative world uh, exists in. 
We need to take nourishment from the world that God provides us. And then that next order of creation, at least animate creation and soul creation uh, in the Aristotelian and uh, Christian medieval model is the animal soul, which seeks community and affection and all the things that our animal nature does, our pro the way we procreate as mammals. And then the third part of our nature is the spiritual nature that we share with the animals and with God himself. God is uncreated. Angels and uh, human beings are created spirits. So there is a, a vast categorical difference between God and created spirits. Yet the microcosm is these these orders of reality. Um, we are organic material. Wait till you die and you go back to being soil. We have a vegetative soul, according to some medievals, an animal soul, and the human rational soul that participates in the same kind of spiritual life as, as the angels. And so to say we're a microcosm means that all the orders of creation are present in the human person. And so why does God have to become a human being to redeem us? Because he has to, he has to participate completely in his own creation. And he doesn't mean just in the rationality of being a human being, like in John's gospel, the logos, as the word, as, as thought, um, as intelligence, as rationality, as coherence. The logos is a very rich word, meaning a lot of those things. He also participates in all these different order, orders of creation. He had an atomic structure. He, uh, he took his nourishment from the soil. Uh, like a vegetable takes his nourishment from the soil. He ate uh, bread, for instance, and he gives us, us his body as this vegetative nature. Um, and so as an, and he participates in the animal nature of the world. And he participates in the human and in soul version uh, of the world, the depth of the world. The point being is that the incarnation of God isn't simply into human reality, but it's this microcosmic understanding. And so for the rabbis, um, they understood the Pharisees, and Paul was a Pharisee, there was the old creation which is the creation that is dying, and then the new creation that's going to come. What Paul understood in the resurrection of Christ, which is at the heart of the Christian mystery, is that the old creation involving suffering and death now overlaps in Christ in the new creation that involves not just the bodily resurrection of human beings, but the redemption of all of uh, human reality. And you hear it very clearly in, the ch in Romans chapter 8, verses 18 to 23, the second reading for this Sunday. So before we get to the sowing of the seeds, I'm going, to read, I'm going to read Paul. Brothers and sisters, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are nothing compared with the glory to be revealed for us. For creation awaits with eager expectation the revelation of the children of God. For creation was made subject to futility, not of its own accord, but because of the one who subjected it, in hope that creation itself would be set free from slavery to corruption and share in the glorious freedom of the children of God. 
We know that all creation is groaning in labor pains, even until now. And only, not only that, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we also groan within ourselves as we await for the adoption, the redemption of our bodies. And so St. Paul sees the resurrection as affecting more than just human beings. But, and you should know this, all of creation at every level. Yes, my friends, even the, uh, the furries that I was spoke to uh, that get in touch with their animal nature, an impoverished understanding to be sure of what it means to be a human being. But the letter to the Romans is Paul's most complete statement of Christ, salvation, and creation. Because it is easy, I think, to take out of the gospel that human beings are saved, but your dog isn't. Um, that's that whole thing, do all dogs go to heaven? My response is clearly Catholic dogs go to heaven, but I suspect all dogs actually go to heaven because they're part of God's creation, which he's redeeming. You know, Paul was formed as a Pharisee in that ancient Jewish tradition between this age, which is in Hebrew is the Halacha Olam Haseh. That's what uh, Professor Brent Petrie says. And the world to come, the Ha Olam Haba. Um, but as a Christian, he understood that we were in this transition time. So Paul's not preaching about Mother Earth or Gaia or the pagan stuff that maybe some of these furries believe in, but that their instincts about their animal nature or the love of creation, they actually find their fulfillment in Christianity because uh, the rest of it is of just a very inadequate story of what it means to be a human being. And so um, for St. Paul, the idea of our creation is that we're created part of this new world. You know, the end of the book of Revelation describes the new world to come. And uh, Paul didn't write it. Probably it came out of the community that gave us the Gospel of John. Um, but uh, it picks up in Revelation chapter 21 at the end of the book, this same instinct that Paul is talking about, Romans 8. So this is very sound Christian understanding of life after death and what we're being prepared for, even the furries. So then here's what the book of Revelation says. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The former heaven and the former earth had passed away and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city of New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, God's dwelling is with the human race. He will dwell with them and they will be with his people and God himself will always be with them as their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes, and there shall be no more death or mourning, wailing or pain, for the old order has passed away. Uh, the ha alem obad, I think, is the, the would be the Jewish way of understanding it, of uh, the old world. He will, the one who sat on the throne, he said, behold, I make all things new. So God will restore creation. Um, you know, these pagan understandings. There is this ancient book called uh, The Golden Ass by Apuleius, and in it he uh, is transformed by magic into an animal. Uh, and it's one of the most famous texts uh, out of the Latin world. Even St. Augustine talks about it in the City of God because it was such a, uh, uh, an important text about paganism. But it just seems to me that's so interesting 
that these patterns of human thought keep recreating itself. So in the golden ass, Apuleius finds himself being turned into a donkey. And then it's kind of a parallel, a semi-pornographic novel. Uh, and he has all these adventures with his girlfriend who actually likes, according to Apuleius, part of the fact that uh, her boyfriend's been turned into a donkey. I'll let you meditate on that. But this is ancient Latin literature. Um, and so this world that we live in with the furries and all the people that uh, Tara Isabella Burton describes in her book, Strange Rites, or in her new book, which I talked about last week, Self-Made, um, this is the world as it always has been. So let's not get discouraged about it. Let's remember that we preach Christ crucified and the redemption of all reality in the microcosm uh, that is Christ because he is human. He's not just God. He's entered into all orders of creation to lift them up and offer them to God. This is the most complete understanding of what it means to be a human being. So that's the background to Jesus' story about sowing seeds. And I think we should turn to that now. And so, friends, we're in the 13th chapter of Matthew. If you remember, the, the, chap, the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, is divided into five discourses. And in between the discourses, there's generally miracles uh, lead, leading up to the very end when Jesus is crucified and rises from the dead. Because all five books of Matthew, all five discourses, point to the end of creation in Christ's death, and in his resurrection. And by end, I don't mean the last day of the physical existence of the universe. What I mean is the final purpose, where all of creation is going, because that's the understanding of the Paschal mystery, the life, death, resurrection, ascension of Christ. Now, in Matthew, remember, there's five basic discourses. We're in, I think, the third, which is called the parables discourse. Why did Matthew, which is the most Jewish of all the Gospels, organize his Gospel with five different discourses? Because the other Gospels are organized differently. Because Matthew is paralleling the five books of the Torah. And so Jesus as the new Moses, Jesus as the new David, Jesus is the new Isaac, the firstborn of the people of Israel. Jesus is the new Solomon, the wise king. Uh, Jesus, as the new Moses, also has his five books, just like Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Um, Matthew has his five discourses. And so the discourse on, para on uh, parables starts with a parable, because it's a discourse on parables. And that's chapter 13, and it's the reading for this Sunday. And I'm going to do the short version because I know you've heard this every year um, and, and know hopefully the story well. So in chapter 13, on that day, Jesus went out of the house and sat down by the sea. Such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood along the shore. And he spoke to them at length in parables saying, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell on the path, and birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky ground where it had little soil. It sprang up at once because the soil was not deep, 
And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and it withered for lack of roots. Some seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it. But some seed fell on rich soil and produced fruit, a hundred or sixty or thirtyfold. Whoever has ears to hear ought to hear. And then remember, in the longer version, uh, the disciples asked, what the heck was that all about? Why do you talk in parables? And so he ex explains, you know, God is always God is basically the point of the parable. God's sun shines on us all. But human beings are like, like soil um, that's either good soil or it's rocky soil, or it's soil with lots of thorns, or it's there's uh, just not much base to it. And as a result, the seed, that is the word of God, is going to result in different kinds of yields or no yield at all. Birds will eat it up or uh, it just won't take root because people are so distracted or you're so disconnected from reality, you can't really understand what Jesus is, is talking about. And so you focus on money, power, sex, whatever it is. And I think we're all familiar with that understanding of this story. In the final section of OVC, Oral Valley Catholic, I'd like to offer some other things to consider about what makes the seeds, the soil of American culture um, hostile to the gospel. And this comes from Matthew Warner, who's the founder of Flocknote. But I thought it was good enough that it was worth uh, talking about. He wrote a book about it, Why They Follow, which you can read, which is about communication and evangelization in the church. But I'm going to give you the shorthand version of why he thinks uh, American culture can be, but is not necessarily so, a hostile soil to the gospel. So Matthew Warner is one of the founders, perhaps the founder of Flocknote, which is the communications platform that we use to send out our weekly newsletter and communicate with most of our ministries. It's a great formation, and he's done a wonderful job supporting the church. So he's well worth listening to because he spends a lot of time thinking about communication. And here's his reflection on this weekend's gospel about the sower of seed and what he sees as um, the factors in American culture that make the gospel hard to reach people who are just disconnected from nature, human reality, and uh, then God. So he says the first thing is poor formation. And he says, uh, we can't dumb down the faith, is you have to preach the faith as it is because if you keep trying to teach it to adults, like you teach it to second graders, there's just nothing there for adults. Um, the Catholic faith is a faith for people who are suffering persecution. It's people who are uh, lost in the world. It's people who have adult problems. And so to um, form people is to form people first in a faith that says that God himself entered into the suffering of the world and came and undertook that for our redemption. Let's hear what he has to say as that it reflects our true condition as human beings. And then in earning our trust by giving uh, and telling us what it really means to be fallen as a human being, we can understand why redemption comes through him. And so that is for both adults 
and children taking formation seriously. And so for adults, uh, it means, amongst other things, is making Christian reading, Catholic reading in particular, uh, part of your formation. I hope you know that you have free subscriptions to form.org and Word on Fire because uh, you receive uh, our St. Mark flock notes. And uh, I call them Catholic Netflix, and they're great sources of things for you, your kids. It, it has teaching at all levels, and it's a great way to hear the basic kerygma of Christianity so that you understand the Nicene Creed, you are an informed believer, and you can defend your faith. And so first, ask yourself whether or not you're well-formed or can be even better formed than you are. The second thing he points out is a social inability. He says instability is what he means, social instability. He says that people uh, respond positively to the message um, of the gospel, but broken families, divided local communities, lack of social rootedness, you know, alienated people, um, alienated from community, alienated from Christ. Or they look at the, the, what they think is the coldness of Catholic communities and they un believe and they love the gospel, but how many people say, but I, I can't stand the church? And my thought is, well, maybe we'd be better off if you were there and actually building community instead of expecting everybody else to do it for you. So if you're one of the people, expect everybody else to do it for you. Ask yourself whether or not you are, uh, are actually contributing to the uh, instability of the larger community, especially the instability of your parish church, and how that might affect uh, how people hear the gospel. Um, or Catholics who think they know it all about the Catholic faith, but really what they know is an oversimplification. Um, I think of it as like a series of boxes that the, uh, the person who is a very shallow understanding of the catechism uh, fits everything into, especially when it comes to sin and who's in and out of the community. It's one of the reasons I think the church has, has been pushing the bishops, um, the um, Eucharistic renewal, uh, because uh, we've used Eucharist, and I think uh, oftentimes wrongly, uh, to alienate people from the church. And then this pope gets criticized because he restores really the true understanding of the Eucharist and how the Eucharist is a sacrifice for sinners. I mean, think of the irony that Jesus dies on the cross, he gives his body and blood, and this is for the remission of sins, and then we deny it to sinners. Please explain to me the rationale of that. I can understand why maliciousness keeps you from the Eucharist. Why, if you're just using the Eucharist, and people do use sacraments. I've had my own horrible experiences of Catholics who uh, use sacraments wrongly. But this seems to me to be an overstated problem. Mostly people are weak. Mostly people have to have a sense of belonging. And being part of a stable community is part of, uh, of the experience of faith. He says another problem is a, a modern lack of imagination. And I think he's going back to uh, problems that really come out of the Enlightenment in the 18th century. Um, what if you believe that the only way you can actually know anything is through your five senses? You can't taste it, smell it, hear it, see it, 
touch it. It doesn't really exist. And there are people, when they talk about science, that's essentially what they're saying. You know, the idea that miracles don't happen because everything is repeatable. The only thing that we can actually put credence into, this is David Hume, is um, events that are plausible because we ourselves have experienced it or something else like it. But you know, at the very heart of being a human being is human thought. And not all human thoughts are replicable. Uh, people have original thoughts. And so the miracle is to the material universe like a creative thought is uh, into, the, into the world of thought. And so uh, Peter Kreeft, and I've talked about this book, Doors and the Walls of the World, really wonderfully explores this. And once again, I recommend that as summer reading. And you can go back and you can look at, listen to the podcast on it. Another reason, he says, people have been hurt or people have been scandalized in the church. The priest has just done a very poor job of being a Christian. Uh, or uh, people in the church have done a very poor job of being a Christian. They've abused other Christians because it's always the who's more Catholic than the other person. Um, you know, uh, I really think you'd, we'd all be better off if we just admitted to each other we are the worst Catholic in the room. And once we've done that, then we're in a position to talk about the mercy of God. And so how do we appeal to uh, people being hurt? I think we start with a sense of humility uh, that we need healing maybe more than they do uh, and that we should pursue it together. And then he says, people aren't always rational. Uh, you know, economic theory is based on people as, as, as rational decision makers. But uh, most of uh, American advertising doesn't appeal to reason. Appeals to emotion, appeals to desire. How about blindness to the familiar? You get a slight case of Christianity and you think you know it all, so you have nothing else to learn. G.K. Chesterton in his classic book, The Everlasting Man, contends that the poor Christian is the worst judgment, judge of Christianity because they don't get what's absolutely powerful about Jesus' resurrection from the dead and lifting up all the orders of creation. And finally, the problem of suffering. And oh, gosh, the problem of suffering in our families and our personal lives is horrible. But the, at the heart of Christian faith is Jesus' suffering on the cross. I'm not sure that there is a satisfactory philosophical answer to the problem of suffering. Um, I think there's great attempts at it, but I think ultimately the only answer to the problem of suffering, the Holocaust, loss of a child, is that Jesus himself died on the cross and that God participates in that suffering. And that suffering doesn't end in destruction, but in life. That's a great gospel to preach. And he's listening to what Mr. Warner has to say about all of these things. These are matters to be taken seriously. So you can look up his book, which is Why Do They Follow? And think about it as a way that you evangelize people in your life and maybe even your kids. Um, and how you talk to the furries in your life are simply disconnected uh, from being human beings and from nature and uh, have adopted for themselves some weird understanding of being a human being uh, that is just not rooted in reality. So well, this has been another edition of Oral Valley Catholic. Give me a like if you were so inclined.